This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. One of the most read stories today on the Bloomberg concerns PG&E, the big California utility, filing for bankruptcy and setting the stage for a major restructuring there. Uh, Mark Chediak joins us on the phone from our San Francisco bureau. Mark, great to connect with you. I know it's been a very busy time, and this was an expected filing, although there was a last-minute effort yesterday for some uh, – financing that the company ultimately rejected. Where do we go from here? Hi, Jason. Yes, thanks for having me uh, on the show. I did enjoy that uh, the music that you played in the lead-in, um, mm-hmm. although I don't know if uh, the lights will actually be turned off uh, right. in San Francisco. I hope not. Um, so where do we go from here? Um, yes, the company filed for Chapter 11 restructuring overnight. Um they say they face uh, at least uh, $30 billion in wildfire liabilities, and they think that um, the bankruptcy court is actually the the place where uh, they can more quickly and easily get through all of those claims. Um, it sounded like they were not um, looking forward to slugging it out in uh, the state courts uh, with claimants um, uh, in a process that probably could have taken you know a number of years. So... Um, so that will be the, one of the main things to watch is mm. um, is what happens with these wildfire victims. And the state itself, the governor, Gavin, the, the new governor, Gavin Newsom, is very uh, has been very uh, forthcoming about the need for wildfire victims to be made whole. So that will be something to watch. Are they right? Because they did also have some investors, right, willing to, I guess, come up with, what was it, roughly about $4 billion or something like that to kind of be a stopgap to kind of help them through the process. Would that been the better way to have done this? I'm curious what you're hearing from uh, the folks that you're talking to about this story, or does it make sense for PG&E to have filed for bankruptcy? Yeah, Carol, that's a great question. Um, the company... Uh, it, the, from reporting we've done, what we're hearing is the company felt as if these alternative financing proposals would have ultimately been a bit more expensive for them mm. um, in the long run in terms of uh, financing costs. And at the same time, um, it would have kept them out of bankruptcy, but the question would have been for how long. What they're really looking for, uh, it seems like, is uh, some sort of State fixed to the to the uh, utility wildfire liability laws um, that have exposed them to these billions of dollars of costs, um, and they didn't feel like that uh, fix was going to come quickly. So even with this uh, bridge financing offered by hedge funds like Elliott and Citadel, they really didn't feel like that would uh, ultimately solve their problems. I, I want to go back to something you said or someone you mentioned, Mark, and that's uh, the newly. Uh, inaugurated Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, you, know, you talked about him you know, making sure it's known that the victims of the wildfire get taken care of. I mean, it's also interesting because he and, and other California politicians have you know, talked a lot about 
sort of climate change and what the state and what the utility uh, in this case needs to do. How does PG&E kind of play into that broader uh, calculus? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's a big issue that the state is going to face going forward with PG&E. PG&E is the largest utility owner in the state. It has signed a lot of renewable energy contracts. It was seen and is seen as a linchpin to the state pushing toward getting a lot more uh, clean energy. Um, And now uh, Newsom, Governor Newsom, and the legislature faces a utility that uh, is financially crippled and it may be harder for the, the utility to find the financial wherewithal to invest in the, the sort of clean energy uh, technologies that the state would like to see. I guess what I find fascinating about this, and um, Mark, help help me understand this. Essentially, could we end up with PG&E goes through this bankruptcy, goes through reorganization, they come out on the other side, maybe they change their name, but it's still kind of the same company, same executives running the utility, the major utility there in the state of California? Uh, yeah, that's a, also a very good question. I think uh, this go-around, that may not happen, and I'll tell you the reason. There are a couple reasons why. One, you have uh, lawmakers who have been calling for a management shakeup at PG&E, um, not just because of the fires, but of other uh, issues the utility has had in the past with safety. Um, you also have the state regulator um they have basically started a proceeding to look at whether or not PG&E needs to be broken up. Yeah. They also have uh, talked about uh, changing management uh, at PG&E. The company's CEO, Geisha Williams, who was only on board for about two years, she stepped down right. Uh, recently right ahead of the bankruptcy. They've had a board member step down as well. And they've had three top executives in their electricity unit step down, and it sounds like there there will be more shakeups to come. So I think I think I think you're going to see at least uh, a different uh, a different management team going forward. Mark Chediak, uh, thank you so much, energy reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. I know you've been uh, burning the midnight oil. looking for clues. Uh, We're going to get a bunch from the tech sector because the big tech names, they are reporting earnings this week. Uh, We've got Apple after the close. You've got Microsoft tomorrow, followed by Amazon uh, on Thursday. Yeah, I guess it'll make it Thursday. Anyway, Julie Verhage, I don't have to make sense of it, but she (laughs) does. She's our fintech reporter here at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Yeah, this is an exhausting one for you guys, huh? Yeah, I think the only reason you like earnings is because you don't have to cover earnings. Oh, wow. <laughs> I like See, it. See, I'm very pro the whole, like, every six months for earnings. I was just going to say, I've done my duty. I've done my duty with earnings, big time. But tell us about it, because I... Just, There's a lot of big ones this week. Yeah, and these are important ones. So mm-hmm. tell us what we should be watching out for, who we're watching, and all that good stuff. Yeah, so I wrote a story this morning about just the three that we're sort of watching, because going into 2018, there was a lot of hype around tech companies. They had a great great sort of first half of the year and then things started to take, to take a turn after we got a couple trillion dollar companies and since then um, a few of them have lost like hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap and just to put that in perspective PayPal is worth a hundred billion dollars wow. so that's like multiple Cheat. PayPals yeah. losing a couple of PayPals here and there yeah so two that are still um, 
sort of struggling a little bit are Facebook and Apple in particular. Apple, you saw lower guidance for, I think it was the first time ever, um, a few weeks ago. So this is um, the first chance they have to sort of just put a positive spin on things again after so many months of struggling. Obviously, China is a big concern in the Apple boat, and then Facebook is just data, DC, consumer privacy, that kind of stuff that they really need to worry about. And for me personally, I'm just interested in user growth because I have so many friends that have recently stopped logging in to Facebook. Right. Well, and they just had the news of kind of putting everything under the umbrella, right? Mm-hmm. Initially, their their mission was to kind of keep their acquisitions right separate, kind of have yeah. their own, you know, uh, folks running the company and kind of let them do their own thing. But and then they, all those people left. But yeah. then all those people <laughs> left and said, yeah, it's not exactly working out, I guess, that way, right? Yeah. So right. I... I do wonder if we'll get some more clarity and more color on that. Yeah, I would hope so. That was, I believe, a scoop from um, someone that they were going to merge everything together. So it'll be interesting to see if they talk about that at all. I'm yeah. sure analysts will want to ask sure. about it on the call afterwards. Um, but, and, yeah. and so talk to us a little bit about, you know, kind of the different roads that these companies seem to be taking, especially in investors' eyes. Because one of the things that seems to be happening is that we don't talk about the fangs as a group maybe uh, mm-hmm. as much anymore each of them has individual challenges, but they're not the same. Right. What's going on? For the longest time, it was like, hey, the FANG stocks are leading the entire market yeah. higher. And around the middle of the year, that started to change a little bit. Amazon, you've seen, start to do a little bit better as e-commerce looked really good over the holiday season. So people are optimistic going into their earnings report. Um, Facebook really just needs to do a better job of communicating with people and not have so many negative headlines coming out. It just seems like every week there's something that causes shares to fall more. The biggest drop we saw, I think like the biggest drop for Facebook ever was back in July after they reported earnings. It was something like 30% in one day and they still haven't recovered from that drop either yeah that's right you know because I was just looking at um, is the New York Stock Exchange has got uh, a New York kind of fang index and I know there's various ones and and it's up about and this includes the big ones that we talk about all the time but it also includes you know other players that are are high growth within the tech community it's up about 14% um, from that uh, Christmas Eve low but I'm Mm -hmm. just trying to check and see what it is from the high because it's still way uh, below one other interesting still down about 19% from the high back in August of last year so one other thing is that Facebook and Google which we haven't mentioned because they weren't as big of a part of the is that their advertising business is still doing pretty well. So that's Facebook? another thing. Yeah. So that'll be another thing that analysts want to keep an eye on. And obviously the daily active users, monthly active users will be a big part of that because if all of a sudden that starts to fall, then advertisers might not be as interested in paying high prices for that. Well, and China, China, China. For Apple in particular, yeah. especially. Yeah. yeah, I do wonder what Apple's going to say, mm-hmm. you know, right? Because you wonder, do they get all the bad stuff out there, right? You were talking about how that was such a pinnacle, I felt like, for everybody mm-hmm. thinking about U.S.-China trade disruption. And we're showing, okay, it did have an impact on, like, the biggest. Right. Right. I wonder wonders how much of a there. surprise it was, though, too, because all of a sudden they stopped reporting iPhone sales and you whatnot. Know, it's like, yeah. oh, you were preparing for this moment. Because if they still had to report that number, I have a feeling it might not be as good as what analysts are anticipating. But you're right. If we get a little bit of a glimmer of hope, mm-hmm. we'll be like, okay, phew, it's right. not more bad news. Yeah, so that's true. Say. That's mm-hmm. true. I mean, it does feel like that's something they're ri- that analysts and investors are really, and journalists are really going to press uh, very hard on. Julie Rahage. Enjoy the week. Thank you. Be busy. Always great being with you guys. <laughs> Carol loves earnings, especially <laughs> when other people write them. <laughs> Julie <laughs> is fintech reporter at Bloomberg. Oh, I'm Hey.
Carol, you know what Bloomberg customers are obsessed with? Private equity? Yes. And really successful investors when they leave and they're going to go do something else. What are uh, they going to do? A big scoop on the Bloomberg today. Eric Schatzker, freshly back from Davos. He's got the story about KKR's Jamie Weinstein. $8 billion he was overseeing or is overseeing at KKR. Picking up and moving on. Eric joins us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is a big deal, Eric. It is, in part because many people don't think of KKR when they think of credit. Right. They think of Blackstone. They think of Apollo. The reality is KKR has built a pretty big credit business, $63 billion of credit assets, eight strategies, the most aggressive, if you will, of which is called special situations. That's where... You know, there's the least liquidity, the longest lockup terms, and, of course, the highest prospective returns. You take more risk, you get more return, at least in theory. And Jamie Weinstein was the co-head of the Special Situations Group, which, as you mentioned, has about eight, eight and a half billion dollars in assets under management. And he's leaving. Now, 14 years at the firm. He's been at the, and that is an important point. What Weinstein is doing is not just leaving, he's going to take some time off and then come back in a more entrepreneurial role. And that word entrepreneurial is important because as these giant alternative asset management firms get bigger and bigger and bigger, there is less and less room for people like Weinstein and others to be entrepreneurial inside them. I don't want to say that they're necessarily becoming bureaucratic, but they're becoming bigger. They're becoming more process-oriented. In some respects, they're losing their appetite for risk. And when that happens... They run the risk of losing people like Jamie Weinstein. It's also interesting, the timing, right? Because it's happening as KKR is getting ready to raise another big fund towards special situations. Absolutely. The timing on one hand is inconvenient because you want your most seasoned investors there when you're raising money to invest in distressed situations and at a time when the economy is slowing and people are increasingly beginning to call for the end of the credit cycle. And you want your top guy who's been in charge of this there Correct. to do it. Well, he shares that responsibility okay. with a guy named Nat Zilka, who, uh, with whom he f- co-founded the st- Special Situations Group and who is head of alternative credit at KKR. And he'll continue running this. Business. He's going to continue. At the same time, I do want to say, if there is a time to leave, yeah. this is it. You don't want to be around when the firm is raising money. And then once the money's raised, say, eh, I'm not going to be running well, this stuff Well, it would be anymore. tricky probably even technically because presumably he'd be a, key, a so-called key man on this fund, right? That's right. And he is a key man on the existing fund. But yeah. Special Situations 2, which has done very well, it's generated a gross return of some 19% over the past 12 months, wow. is nearing the end of its investment period. So given that it's close to the end, they're about to raise this new fund, he, has a, he still has a good relationship, Nat Zilka. Uh, gave me some on-the-record comments, which make clear that at least from his perspective and probably that of Henry Kravis and George Roberts inside the firm, Jamie Weinstein is still viewed very favorably. I can say with some certainty, if it were up to them, he would not be leaving, but he wants to do something different. Well, Young guy, too. 42 years 42 old. 42 years so old. He's he got ju- lots of runway left. <laughs> He's got a lot of runway. So he joined, you know, if I'm doing my math right, he joined at 28. And to your point, joined a very different firm, you know, privately held much smaller in terms of assets, much smaller because he helped start it in turn to help start this business in terms of even the scope of the firm. And right? KKR was doing things differently back then. Yeah. What did Jamie do before joining KKR to your point at the age of 28? 
He was running Northern California Acquisitions for a real estate company, Tishman Spire Properties. So while he understood credit, he'd gone to Princeton, he had an MBA from Stanford, he wasn't a deep credit guy. KKR gave him the opportunity to build this knowledge, to build this expertise. And Jason and Carol, you both know that if you were to walk around the street and visit any one of these firms today, whether it's KKR, Carlisle, Apollo, TPG, KKR, I said it again, it doesn't really matter. They don't hire people that way anymore. They only hire superstars for jobs like that. You don't get a job in credit starting special situations having done California, Northern California acquisitions for a property Right, company. back in the day, it was like, you seem like a sharp guy. And, you <laughs> That's know, right. You can we learn like sharp young guys. Like, why don't you try this out? But we see this a lot in the financial sector, Eric, is that someone who has done well, learned a lot, been at a firm for a while, and then says, okay, now it's time for me to go out on my own. Yes, and I think it is symptomatic. That trend is symptomatic of what we were talking about before, this idea that mm-hmm. the firms are getting very large. They are asset-gathering machines. Now, they will tell you that they're just as good at investing as they used to be, and maybe they are. Maybe the returns prove that, but it's being done in a different way. And people like Doug Ostrover and Trip Smith, for example, yeah. right, who, who started GSO with Bennett Goodman have left and gone on to do their own things. Right. This is – it's a thing, Well, right? you think about thing. like a Mark Gologli, you know, going even further back. Uh, Center Bridge, of course. At Center Bridge. So, this is like the financial equivalent of name drops. Here, can I pick that up for you guys? <laughs> well, Alex hey, Nabob, no. details matter. Names make news. But you have to give it credibility. How soon do we think he's going to come back from his time off? It's going to be a few months. Okay. You know, he, he – look, again, to maintain good relationships at KKR, he's not going to start – you know, running a rival business tomorrow. It is interesting, too. I'm going to drop one other name, which uh, Eric knows very well, Alex Nabob. You know, a guy who was very senior at KKR, uh, ran private equity, and then when the succession planning started getting underway. He'll be back. He'll be back back as well. So from buybacks to hog we go. Shares of Harley-Davidson, they're down roughly 6% as we speak. The motorcycle maker getting caught in the trade wars. Let's get what to uh, what you need to know. Uh, Gabriel, what, Cop- you, what, you, what you need to know. <laughs> I just don't know, even know where that came from. Gabrielle Coppola is autos reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So what do we need to know about this release? Well, uh, You need to know that Harley-Davidson is trying really hard to turn the company around, but um, so far they have not really been able to produce any results. So is it a turnaround story? Is it a U.S.-China trade story? A little bit of... I think, I mean, I I actually think the fundamental problem with Harley, uh, something people have talked a lot about, is that they need to find a way to connect with younger younger consumers. Um, You know, they are known as the baby boomer. Yeah. You know, that's the baby boomer generation. That's their primary customer. Um, and, and they're doing that and they're doing a lot. You can't say they're sitting still they They have this big turnaround plan. They're investing hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, they're making an electric motorcycle, which if you think of anything could be any more the antithesis of the Harley brand, uh, you know, a quiet electric motorcycle. Right. Um, <laughs> but they've got to do that. So they're like, it's like, <laughs> electric cars are silent. I have a, a easy rider thing just isn't going to happen, yeah. right? Right. But so, but they're thinking about uh, uh, someone, maybe someone who lives in a big city who wants to get around the city, you know, or and that could be New York, or that could be somewhere in Asia or India, um, and that's where they're seeing a lot. That's where they've had seen more growth versus you know, in the U.S. I have to say that my sister, who is a baby boomer, and her husband, they used to actually have a Harley that they play with a little bit on their weekend, like on the weekends. They sold it. 
Like oh, they got, really? you know what I mean? So How like, come? Wow. Um, a little couple of close calls safety wise. Mm-hmm. And they were very careful and would take it on like on, you know, nice country roads and whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think they just, you know, they've moved to another part of their life. So it's interesting. So even though it's right, and you're just playing to that baby boomer thing. And obviously, it's a bit of a political football here, Harley has become, right? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I don't mean to uh, downplay that. I mean, definitely, I think it has um, impacted the way some people in the U.S. Uh, view the brand. You know, we actually did a story about this last year where we interviewed a bunch of Harley riders and found that, you know, surprising or unsurprisingly, Harley riders are just as divided as the country politically. Some people blame the president uh, for tariffs uh, that was hurting the company and having it move production, some of its production overseas, you know, from the U.S. Other people just blame, think that was an excuse. That's what Trump said. Oh, they're using the, the you know, right. the tariffs right. as an excuse. Um, but the bottom line is they're having to cut costs because demand in the U.S. is weak. And on top of that, they've had to deal with the trade war. And that has hurt their profits. I think these lightweight um, bikes, these urban bikes, we'll have to see whether or not they catch on. But that could be an interesting kind of new revenue stream. We'll have to see. Uh, Gabriel Coppola, thank you so much. Autos reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Here comes the money. So we do want to talk a little bit about uh, making money and investing in this environment. But bluntly, the worst is over when it comes to investing in stocks. That's kind of what I think our next guest uh, has on his mind. Wayne Wicker is back with us, Chief Investment Officer at Vantage Point Investment Advisors, $27 billion in assets under management, based in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Hey, before we get into kind of your bigger, broader outlook, we do have a slew of earnings. Like, it is interesting. Jason and I are trying to make sense out of AMD. It looks like they're raining in their forecast. Stock's up 5% here in the after hours. We're waiting for Apple. Uh, eBay, I think, also, Jason, were they up, I think, in their after, yep. in the after hours? Uh, it's a little bit of a mixed bag here. How are you seeing earnings, and how is it kind of playing into your thinking about investment opportunities here? Yeah, Carol, earnings are target-rich right now. We're going to have about 20% of the uh, S&P reporting this week. That'll give us 40% so far. Uh, I know it's been a mixed bag, but if you look at the average beat, both on the top line and the earnings per share for companies that have reported so far. You know, you're up about 4% versus expectations on earnings and over 2% above revenues. So while we've seen some... So uh, we're beating 4% on the bottom line, 2% mm-hmm. on the top line? Right. And uh, to me, that's a good sign because if you're beating on the revenue line still, right. uh, you can do a lot of things to earnings to right. kind of manip- manipulate them, but you can't do anything to the revenue line. The revenue line is the revenue line. And so as we're still seeing positive growth on the revenue line, I think that bodes well for uh, the future direction here. Well, and it does feel like maybe through the fourth quarter, maybe some of that volatility toward the end of the fourth quarter had something to do with it. People's expectations did dial back a little bit. It had always been the assumption that the first quarter was not going to be, you know, 2019 is not going to be like 2018. And it did feel like we started to sort of gloom ourselves into maybe uh, a place where we could have some positive surprises. Yeah, exactly. Right? We talked ourselves down so much that you do wonder, okay, wait, we're like, okay, it's not as bad as everybody expected. Right? Right. And uh, I think that you saw uh, middle of December, you couldn't do anything right. Even those yeah. companies that uh, were reporting positively, they'd be uh, treated by investors uh, on a down day. But you've changed psychology as of uh, the end of December, and I think most of it was driven by the Fed. You know, uh, All right, so let's talk about tone. that because I want to talk about the psychology <laughs> of the Fed. We're you know, a day out uh, from hearing the fir- for the first time this year in sort of an official uh, press conference sort of way from Jay Powell and obviously – 
the Fed rate decision as well didn't go so well for Chair Powell toward the end of last year. He had to sort of walk it back. Some of his colleagues had to clarify. You know, we joked about, you know, coming up with a drinking game that you'd have to drink every time you heard the words either data dependent or patience. Right. Um, What do you expect to hear from Chair Powell tomorrow? I think it's going to be very benign. I think that uh, we saw in December uh, when that quote, autopilot uh, thought process uh, penalized the market so dramatically, and he had to step it back, as Jason just talked about, uh, that I think he's going to be very sensitive about uh, uh, what's going on. And look, it's only been three weeks, three and a half weeks since he uh, made his last comment. So I don't expect to see anything different uh, tomorrow than uh, what he saw in terms of data dependency uh, uh, comments uh, earlier this week. Does it make sense, too? Because you're pretty upbeat. As I said, you think the investment losses of last year behind us, stocks will rebound this year. Do you think it's right for the Fed if you're upbeat, it sounds like, about the outlook for corporate profits and and uh, revenue growth and uh, the corporate picture. Does it make sense for the Fed to be on hold? Well, I think there's a couple of things that you need to look at uh, that if I were on the Fed would be concerns to me. Uh, do we have inflation? Uh, we, we just reported 199,000 on the unemployment, lowest since 1969, right? Yeah. Uh, but where's the wage inflation that is screaming out of control? I don't see that, and I don't think the Fed sees it either. Uh, if you look at commodities, uh, if you look at commodity indexes, maybe there's a lot of uh, pent-up inflation there, but I look at uh, companies that could be representative, even if you don't look at the indexes, like warehouser, you know, mm-hmm. Over the last year, look at that chart. That tells you that lumber prices are, are not escalating. Uh, you don't see it in any of the other core um, metals or, or, uh, or other commodities. So I don't see inflation anywhere uh, that's out of the ordinary for uh, the environment that we're in. So to me, those types of things uh, would suggest that uh, to be on hold and to take, take it as it comes over the next uh, six to nine months is appropriate. So 30 seconds left, biggest single worry. What, what could sort of ruin all this Wayne Wicker optimism? <laughs> well, I, I think that like the rest of the market, uh, March 1st is going to come. Yeah. And nobody Trade expect, deadline. Yeah, nobody's going to expect that we are going to get something done in time. Uh, my fear uh, would be if uh, most people are assuming that we'll do something on tariffs uh, to push them out a little bit, not integrate them into the uh, structure. If, if we go hard line and uh, go forward with tariffs, I think that would be a, a pretty bad situation for investors. Yeah, point. I think a lot of investors would concur yeah. <laughs> with that one. Hey, Wayne Wicker, thank you so much. Great to see you. Appreciate today. it. Good to see you. Chief Investment Officer, Vantage Point Investment Advisors, $27 billion in assets under management based in Washington, D.C. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
And it is time for the drive to the close. And we check in. We we check in. We're checking. <laughs> we check. are checking in uh, with Ann Valetti. She is Senior Portfolio Manager, Wells Fargo Asset Management. Joining us from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, Wells Fargo Asset Management, of course, overseeing about $466 billion. Ann, nice to be with you virtually, uh, especially at this interesting time in the markets, we're through the government shutdown for now. Uh, earnings on deck, and we're in the midst of them. So what's on your mind? What's the number one question you have about this market? Well, there's so many questions to be had out there, and I still think we have some challenges in front of us. But I do think that we've made a lot of progress so far. So I think the number one question in everybody's mind is after this really strong January that we saw, what is February going to look like? And what what is the rest of earnings season going to deliver to investors? Um, and so and far, by strong January, you mean from a stock performance perspective? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. With the market, you know, showing us such um, a, a tough Q4 um, and then surprising us with such you know good things so far year to date. I mean, for the market to be up almost, you know, well, over 5% through today, actually, it's, it's pretty amazing but how do strong you, we came out of the gates. But do you think about, I think about last year, right? Didn't we have a rally like in January and then it came undone and, uh, <laughs> you know, like I've seen, I've seen this movie before. We did. You know, in fact, we had, I think, the largest point decline ever on February 5th or 6th of last year, right? Um, totally different story, um, different different ball game last year. There was fears of inflation then. Um, but yeah, it almost does feel like the same January in some cases. A lot of hope that things are going to be a little bit different. Certainly the storylines are different. Um, but yeah, you used to have this resurgence in January of hope. Um, but I think a lot of the negative data points um, have happened. Certainly there was a lot of fear in December and we lost we had a lot of multiple compression, making the market seemingly more attractive coming into the year, certainly more attractive coming into the year than we ended the year at. Can yeah. we talk, just because we only have about a minute, minute uh, 15 left, Fortune Brands is a name that you like. It's up about 13% this year. It's home and security products. Uh, they've got kitchen and bath cabinetry. So a bunch of things that play certainly into the housing market. Uh, we did get some data points today about home prices, uh, the lowest in some time, uh, or showing decreases for the most in, in some time. Why this name at this point? Right. So we have not been big investors in home builders over a long period of time. One, they're just generally speaking, not the greatest business models, but home construction product companies, building products companies can be fairly good business models. Fortune Brands is actually one of the best. They tend to be leading um, in revenue growth and operating margins, but certainly they have felt the headwinds from you know, softness in the housing market. We believe that this company is trading at a discount to its private market value. And that would just be, if it were to be sold today or put itself up for sale, we believe it would be worth 25 to 30% more in the public, mar- I'm sorry, in the private market than yeah. the than the street or the market. So it's a special situation play kind of here. Well, kind of, but not, you know, I yeah. mean, I think we're not expecting it to be taken out. So that's, okay. that's it. What we're saying is, 
the private market is still acquiring companies in the public market. There's a disconnect between what public investors are, are willing to pay because of the fears. And this company stands out to me as one of those companies that has a disconnect in its valuation over a long period right. of time. And Maletti, Senior Portfolio Manager, Wells Fargo Asset Management, on the phone with us from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Thank you so much, as always, for your time. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.